Hi, I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Andrew Hallam. Andrew is a personal finance journalist, speaker, author, and weekly podcast guest. He wrote three books, Millionaire Teacher, Millionaire Expat, and Balance. I have read two, Millionaire Teacher, and most recently, Balance. I also have gifted several copies, and I can't stop recommending his books. Because of his first book, I changed my investments, my way of thinking about money, the way I manage everything, and I also guided our two boys towards financial literacy. I will always be grateful to Andrew for that. I read Balance a couple of months ago, and in it I learned that he is traveling the world with his wife Pele for the last eight years living a nomadic life. I also learned that he covered much of Costa Rica on a tandem bicycle. I wanted to know more, and I invited him to share his story. To me, it's an honor that he's here today. To not talk about money, but about another passion of his and Pele's. A passion I share with my husband, Dave. Traveling. He's also a superb teacher and original from British Columbia, Canada, where I live. So let's enjoy his story. Welcome, Andrew, to the show. I am super excited that you're here today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. And the pleasure is all mine. I have semi-followed you since 2010. You are a financial guru and have written several books about investment. And you are invited to podcast weekly. Probably weekly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's why I'm very happy that you're here with a different story. You've been living a nomadic life for eight years now, That's right. Yes. Tell me, when does your story start? You know, I think I should go back first to say that when I was 12, my parents ended up encouraging me to go on an educational tour through the Mediterranean, which really piqued my curiosity for travel. And my parents did not have a lot of money. My dad was a mechanic. My mom worked a retail job. There were four kids. I had to save for it as well, but it really piqued my curiosity for travels. I was in seventh grade. It was an educational tour where we had to learn about these places that we would see before we saw them. Danielle, I always had a real interest in other countries. And then when I had an opportunity in 2003 to take a, a deferred salary leave, what most public school teachers in Canada have an option of doing, and, and some of them don't even know this, but they can take a full year off or a semester off. They do a, a deferred salary leave. And so what I did was, it was a, an aggressive one. It was a three-in-one. I gave 33% of my gross annual income to the school district. And at the end of three years, they in turn give me that money back on a monthly basis plus interest while I have a full year off. And they guarantee me my job when I get back. But I never did come back. So I traveled for a year. And then I ended up in Singapore. A friend of mine ended up with a job there. And so I was teaching at an international school and it just fueled my drive for travel, my interest for travel, because we got 13 weeks off a year and Singapore was so central. You know, we could go off even on a weekend. We could fly to Phuket, for example. It was like a one and a half hour flight. And on a Friday afternoon or Friday evening, we could be having dinner on the beach in Phuket, Thailand. And so just this whole, I guess, 
locational circumstance made us even more curious for travel in different places and different cultures. And we would meet these people that would be, you know, we'd be at this island called Pulau Tiamen, which is a couple of hours up the coast, up the East Malaysian coast from Singapore. It's one of the coolest places in the world. And we, we met this couple on a sailboat who had two children. They were traveling around and he was a policeman. And, and I can't remember, I think she was a nurse. And they decided that they would take a year off. They would sail throughout Southeast Asia. I remember being really inspired by that. Like they just stopped working and they just had saved their money. They weren't interested in, in things. They were more interested in experiences. And so they'd saved their money, took their children out of school, homeschooled their children for a year. And it was just so inspiring for me to knowing that, you know, all of us are terminal. None of us know how long we're going to live. And they were building incredible memories with their kids. At one point, shortly after meeting them, and of course, I met loads of people like this through our travels, loads of them, so many of them. My wife, just, she said to me one day, well, let's take a year off because we were still teaching. She was teaching Spanish at Singapore American School, and I was teaching high school English and personal finance. And we thought we'd take one year to travel, but one year led to two, which led to three, which has led to eight. And we just haven't stopped. The first thing we did was we have a tandem bicycle. It comes apart. And it fits into two hard cases. You could just put it on an airplane and you don't have to pay for extra luggage. So I take one of the suitcases. My wife takes another. We stuff a few other things in there, like a few other clothes and shoes and such. And then we, we flew to Spain and we put the bicycle together in Pamplona. And then we, we cycled across to, to the coast, the far coast. Basically, we followed the route of the Camino, Camino de Santiago. It's such a cool experience. We ended up then flying to Canada. We did some camping with my parents. It was just nice to be able to spend time visiting them, camping with them. And then we flew to Mexico. We rented a, a house in Lake Chapala, actually Chapala the town for about $350 a month. And it was in a pretty interesting little community and about eight kilometers away from Ahihik, which is a really popular expatriate retirement location. So we spent several months there and then flew to Southeast Asia. And we just got into this pattern of renting a place for like a month, staying there like Northern Thailand or Malaysia, and just soaking in the culture, meeting new people. People would suggest other places perhaps that we should try and we should visit. And that's really that's really been our life since then is just trying to go from adventure to adventure, experience to experience. One of my favorites was we flew back to Canada in 2017 and we bought a 21 foot long Winnebago Travado. So it's a camper van. And we decided we wanted to drive it down to Argentina. And what a lot of people don't know is you can't actually drive from all the way from Canada to Argentina because from Panama to Colombia, although it's joined by land, there isn't an actual road there. So it's an area called the Darien Gap. And you have to actually ship your vehicle around it. So from, say, Panama over to Colombia. And we had no, no real time frame for this thing. You know, we'd obviously, we'd saved our money for this. I work on lines. I didn't end up having to use any of our savings. So our savings just continued to grow. So our investments continued to grow. And we were able to live on the money that I earn online through my regular writing. It was an incredible trip because we didn't have a time frame. We didn't know how long we were going to be. We spent 10 months in Mexico alone just exploring that country. And it was just 
is such a phenomenally diverse, beautiful country in so many ways. Yes. Well, I have so many questions for you. Going back to, you said that you got into a trip at, when you were 12. Your siblings did that too? They had a choice. They could do that, but they chose not to. Oh, okay. Okay. So that it was really natural. Yes. Okay. And you met your wife in Singapore? Yeah. She's an American and I met her there. So she was teaching Spanish at Singapore American Schools. You know, I landed in Singapore after traveling for a year. I was naive. I thought, well, I'll travel the world for a year. Well, you can't see the world in a year. You can't see much in a year. But the places I did see were amazing. And instead of coming back to Canada at the end of that excursion or the end of that, that year, I ended up getting a job in Singapore. And, and that's where I, I ended up meeting my wife. And where did you grow up in Canada? And I grew up in Kamloops, British Columbia. So you were working together and your wife just said, let's travel for a year. And that's it. No much thinking about it. I mean, how is the process? I think people think too much, Daniela. I like the process of let's go. Let's do it. Let's commit and let's go. There's some planning that you can do along the way. We didn't do any, but I recommend some people do some planning. But at the same time, so much just unwinds as you go because you really can't plan that far in ahead with that kind of detail because you have no idea what you're going to see, how much you're going to like it, what kinds of experiences you're going to have, who you're going to meet, who can influence you to see different things or see things a different way or even income generating possibilities can just be something that opportunistically falls on your lap just through meeting the right person or having an experience. We just went. I don't think we thought much about it. I had a big piece of paper. I wrote down a bunch of things on there. Like I remember one was like four months in Spain. Another was like buy an RV and drive throughout the United States. We never did the RV throughout the United States, really. We spent about two months just down that West Coast, hitting some of the national parks, and then down into, obviously, Mexico and then Central America. It was a rough idea of what we wanted to do. My wife wanted to learn different languages. She already speaks Spanish fluently. She wanted to learn French. She wanted to learn Portuguese, maybe even Italian. So we thought we would end up in some of these places for sort of a, a French-speaking community for four or five or six months where she could immerse herself and then learn the language and then maybe move on to another place. And we still haven't actually done that yet. So this was part of our plan, but it wasn't concrete. I guess our first time really thinking about getting back on track there is this summer we're going to France. My wife is going to do some language classes. I'm likely just going to bring my bicycle and ride up the Alps, the Pyrenees. <laughs> you didn't own a house in Singapore? No. Okay. No, we didn't. So we rented a house in Singapore. We were very, very fortunate because our employer would pay for the rent. And so this was a, a fabulous thing. We didn't actually have to pay for housing there. Okay. That's the thing. People own a house. First of all, all the things that are in the house, how you get rid of all that. And then selling the house or renting the house. You know, I think that's the issues that some people will have because not everybody has the same situation as you. Yeah. I think if you own a house, I know several people who have done this where they've owned the house and then they've rented it out, and then they've gone to travel. Mm -hmm. They actually get income from the rent, which helps them with their traveling as well. So I know a lot of people that do that. And then at the same time, on the flip side, I suppose, owning things can be a real pain. There's something really free about not owning things. One of the things that my wife and I did do in 2017 was we bought a condominium in Victoria. And we're actually going to sell it in May. We're going to simplify so many 
components of our lives by actually getting rid of it and selling it. The, the issue is like, well, we're going to go for a year, maybe it turns into eight, but what if you don't like it? What if you have to come back? And so then you don't have the house. That's a question that I, I wonder. Yeah. Oh, if you actually sell it? Yes. That's okay. Then you can rent or then you could perhaps buy another house in that place or another location. I think too many people think about reasons why they cannot do things instead of counting the reasons why they can. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. What do you think is the fine line between enjoying your life, but also saving enough for what you want to do? Well, I don't think that owning things is really hinged to enjoyment. We just think it is. Research on life satisfaction says that things that we own do not enhance our life satisfaction. We just believe that they do. And so once you can free yourself of that, it opens up so many more financial possibilities. It allows you to declutter. It allows you to streamline, sell the things that you don't need for cash that you could use to augment your lifestyle with experiences or with travel. And you may not have to travel the world, but if you want to take some time, you could even be traveling your own province or even staying at home, not traveling at all, but just trying something different, just some sort of different hobbies. And if you're not working full-time, you're going to need some money for that, exploring different avenues. Some of them might be potentially future income generating. But a large part of it is that we believe that things enhance our life, that things make us comfortable. And it's a giant delusion because things do not enhance our happiness. They do not make us laugh anymore or feel any better. We just think they do. So in part, there's a massive marketing machine that's convinced us that this is the way. And also there's a component in human nature where we often look at the people next door who might have more than us or our friends and we might want as much as them, but they're not happier than us. They're not happier than you. Someone with a brand new car isn't happier than you just because you have an old car. We, we really quickly get used to the things we own. And once we recognize that things don't enhance life satisfaction, it frees us to start spending our time, resources, and thought, most importantly, our thoughts on things that do enhance our life satisfaction. And now that you've been traveling to different countries, have you noticed that uh, looking at what the Jones has, the next door neighbors, is something that happens mostly in North America or I'm mistaking? It's very prevalent in urban centers, I would say. And I would say North America. It's probably more dramatic than most places. Yeah. There are so many people in North America that feel they need to acquire things and they end up often getting into debt to acquire these things. So these things don't enhance their life satisfaction. We know that debts actually contribute to levels of misery. So we have research on that. So people will go into debt voluntarily giving themselves misery, but they don't know it to acquire something that they think will make them happy, but doesn't. So it's this weird hedonic treadmill of misery and there's no wonder why so many people say you know they're not happy they're stressed out and i find that people are happier where life is simple life is better where life is simple and based on my definition people are successful where life is simple people aren't successful on a hamster track people aren't successful in a rat's maze which you often get with the typical people in a large urban center who are trying to keep up with the Joneses and always trying to buy the next best thing. Yes. And it's true. Like you have a bigger house now, you have to clean more and then you have to do more stuff to the house. 
not everybody wants to travel for sure. Not everybody wants to do the same thing. So I guess people think that having stuff because they don't know what else to do is the answer. So that's what happens. Yeah. And it definitely is not. Yeah. So Andrew, tell me about the tandem. Is that what he calls a bicycle for two? Mm-hmm. I'm just curious because I know I've done it once and I find it that it's very, very complicated, but I guess that kind of shows the rhythm that you two have as a couple, <laughs> that you can actually go for a long time in a bicycle. So when do you decided to have that bicycle? <laughs> oh, I bought that in 2005 and I think we've probably cycled in 18 or 20 different countries with the tandem. Yeah, you did Costa Rica too. Yeah. You think it's safer than having two bicycles? Would it be safer? Um, I don't know. I just don't understand the, why would you have it instead of having two bicycles? What's the reason behind it? Uh, <laughs> for one, it's fun. On a flat road, it tends to be more efficient. So you have the same frontal wind resistance of one person, but you have two motors. You can always talk to each other. So if you have two bicycles and you're trying to talk, in a conversation, you have to be side by side. Being side by side isn't safe. You could also have like your partner behind you on another bicycle, but you'd have to yell to actually hear each other. It's easy to communicate when you're on a tandem because you're together. And so we just really enjoy the teamwork process of it. If one of us gets tired and the other one's feeling strong, then the other person is able to help. We're together as a team versus if you're on two singles and one of us gets tired, and one of us is waiting, but that person who's waiting or going slowly can't really help the person who's tired. We really, really enjoy it. Okay. I think you sold it to me because especially in the part that the other person is stronger, that would be my husband. So he could keep pedaling. That would be great. (laughs) 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 That sounds great. El Camino, you took Pamplona to El Galicia. I think that's the longest road. The longest road? Because to El Camino, there are several roads to get there. Mm-hmm. And I, I was looking into it because some a friend of ours, they walk it for um, three months. So I thought, how long did it take you? Oh, it doesn't take very long. I think it only took like eight days. Okay. One of our shorter trips. We've also cycled like around, we flew to Frankfurt a few years ago, and we cycled down to Switzerland and France and down to Slovenia and to Croatia. We ended up doing this really great loop. We would have kept going, actually. We decided we were going to go up north into Poland, but it was getting really getting a little bit late in the year, so it was getting colder. Yeah, we really enjoy it. We love riding the tandem. We've ridden it through Southeast Asia, little islands like Lombok in Indonesia, where you're half dirt roads and a little bit of paved. You're going through villages that many of them don't have electricity and little children are all running out and waving, hello, 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 and practicing their English and chasing you as you run through the village. They're like celebrating your arrival. It was really cute. Yes, of course. But it's a great conversation starter. Like we call the tandem the, the smile machine. And people smile when they see people on tandems. When you're in a village or in a town and a couple of touring cyclists come into town, Uh, It might be of mild interest, but when people come in on a tandem, people automatically smile. They they seem to just enjoy seeing two people working together on a bicycle touring. Yes, of course. Something unusual. So so you went from Canada all the way to Panama driving? We actually didn't get any further than Nicaragua. So when we had our van, we got to the border with El Salvador and Nicaragua, but there were some a civil war going on in Nicaragua. Okay. And so we actually ended up then turning around. We would like to eventually 
do the entire thing. My wife and I were talking about perhaps shipping our van to maybe a place like Colombia mm. and then driving from Colombia down to Argentina and then back because we've already done the part from Canada down to El Salvador. So we thought, and we then cycled in Costa Rica the following year. So we've already sort of seen much of Costa Rica when we cycled around the country on our tandem. Yes, I read in your book, Balance, that you said that one of your favorite countries, the people were the nicest. Yeah, they're lovely people. So how long did it take you to see Costa Rica? Because it's not big. Right, I think it was probably about five weeks. But it was hard, five weeks, because when you are in the center, San Jose, but then going to the Arenals and where the volcanoes are is up the hill, so it is hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was exactly what we did, straight up the volcano. I love that challenge. Like, I really enjoy climbing up hills. And so just getting into a great rhythm and all we hear is just our breathing and tires and the wind and the birds. I absolutely love the effort of climbing uphill on the tandem. We were there in 1998 and every place we stay, we had some kind of animal in the room. We had a snake in one room. We had frogs in the other showers. We had <laughs> spiders with long legs. On the, and we, we were not in the cheapest, cheapest room, but somehow, even if we check the room, something will come up. Well, the snake, they got scared too, the, you know, the people that were managing the place. And so that was kind of worry. If they got scared, that was worrisome. And then the frogs, the the owner will say, well, the frog was there before you, so sorry. So that was, that was nature, so that was, that was cool. From there, you didn't go to Boca del Toros, Panama? No, from there we didn't. Ended up flying back actually to Canada in March 2020. As you can imagine, it was our last trip in a long time because – We anticipated just spending 12 days in Canada, just came for a quick visit. And then we were going to fly to, I had some talks in Kiev, Ukraine. So I was scheduled to do some talks there. And then we were going to spend part of the summer in Cyprus and rent an Airbnb. But of course, COVID hit. And so everybody was grounded, uh, including us in Victoria. It was okay for us because my family lives in Victoria. My parents and my siblings all live there and nieces and nephews. They're all there. So it was it was a nice place to be hunkered down to sit out uh, at least the vast majority of the, the, the pandemic. And they haven't seen you for so long as well. Yeah, that's right. And I haven't seen them since May of last year. So May 2021. So we will be leaving Panama in about nine days and we'll be going to Victoria to visit them. So I, I do look forward to that. Great, great. What about the Mexico? Ten months it wasn't enough? I know Mexico is like an open museum. Oh, I could spend I could spend years exploring Mexico. It was amazing. You know, we went down the Baja Peninsula and just camping along the beaches there. It was so fascinating. Then we took a ferry across to Topolabombo and then we drove down to Mazatlan. And then we, we drove up to Guadalajara, and then we came back to the Pacific coast. So we went down the Pacific coast from Malaque down to Acapulco, and we just kept on going. Zipolite, and then Chiapas, the province of Chiapas. Oh, my gosh. It's gorgeous. They've got these great lakes and these beautiful rivers and fantastic waterfalls, such great places to swim. The mountains there are so, so beautiful. And the people and the culture is so varied. They have 23 national languages in Mexico. And so many people don't realize that when you go into so many of these countries where 
you think are just Spanish speaking. In fact, in the in the mountains, in many of these areas of Mexico, they didn't understand Spanish. My wife speaks fluent Spanish, and you'd be speaking to this or trying to speak to some of these mountain people. They don't understand Spanish. It's so much fun. So much fun. Yes, wow. And how are you traveling in Mexico? We were in the, in the camper van. Oh, okay, okay. And how is your ru daily routine? How do you keep fit besides the tandem, but you're not using the bicycle every day, no? I do a lot of like body weight type exercises. So I do a lot of like push-ups, a lot of core exercises, like all I need is some grass. I do a lot of pull-ups. I can do a pull-ups from a tree or from like a playground or from soccer goalposts. We also have like a, it's a TRX with kind of these leather straps that allow us to do pull-ups from trees or different types of exercises that will hang from, like I say, goalposts and playgrounds and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think it's, again, simple. Like there's nothing that you, that you can't do just out in nature. Like we don't need gymnasiums. We can stay really fit without that. It's nice though to have a gymnasium. I know that people go to gym and they, they, they can be motivated by people around them who are actually exercising at the same time. Some people have personal trainers and that's great too. But it's nice to know that when you're on the road, you don't actually need these things. And so what do you spend the money on when you're in every country? Food, massages, gas, Sometimes accommodation if we're not in the camper van, or sometimes if we are in the camper van, we might stay at a campsite occasionally, not that often, but we might pay for a campsite. We will spend it on sometimes like a cool experience, like when we were on the, in the Copper Canyon of Mexico, there were these zip lines that we wanted to do. And it's a touristy thing, but it's a fantastic thing to do. So we did these zip lines across sections of the Copper Canyon, which was exhilarating and frightening and crazy all at the same time, but we, we loved it. Where was this? This was in Mexico in the Copper Canyon, a little bit northeast. Yeah, that's fun. People will find sometimes you'll spend less money traveling than you will living at home. I'm sure. When you go into a place or you decide to go to a place, do you set a budget? Well, at the beginning, I guess. Now you, you have a routine, so you know what to spend. At the beginning, you, you had a budget or not? We didn't. So what I do is I track everything that I spend and I track everything that I earn. And the general idea is that obviously we want to be spending less than I'm actually earning. That was always the general rule that we would live by. And there were months, of course, where expenses were higher than our actual income. But most of the time, we've been able to save money the last eight years. So our income exceeds the amount of money we're spending. And, you know, the spending is so different depending on where you are as well. Like we spent so little when we were traveling through Vietnam. And likewise with Thailand, if you choose to travel through Panama, it'll be a lot more expensive. Likewise with Costa Rica, if you choose to like check out the national parks and such, it's expensive to do that. It really depends on where we are in terms of how much we're spending, but we do like overall to try to spend less than we're earning, which makes a sense, mm -hmm. right? And then when you go traveling, have you met people that are younger than you, older than you, or a lot of people your age? Oh, that's a really good question. Most of the people are, are actually younger or older. So not as many who are our age. We started doing this in our 40s and we didn't meet as many people in their 40s. We would meet people who were retired and we would meet people who were really, really young, who were taking like, who had the adventure spirit. They were taking a year off or five years off just to travel and fly by the seat of their pants. Now things have started to change where there are more digital nomads. There are more people who are realizing they can earn their income online. And whenever they realize they can earn their income online, and I think COVID has probably accelerated that, 
based on the fact that everybody was going, so many people weren't going to the office, they were going to Zoom meetings, and they realized that if they could work from home, why can't they work from Guatemala? Why can't they work from Colombia? Why can't they work from Mexico? And why can't they bring their children with them? And why can't their children do homeschooling? So we're starting to see more people in their late 30s, 40s, and 50s who are not officially retired, but are actually living the lifestyle that we're living. But with that, you're saying that at our age, which is in the 50s, there you have to have a job, otherwise you can't do it. Well, it depends. You don't want to touch your savings, right? Right. Because you need it when you retire. Is there a possibility that you can travel and then find work somewhere, like something light, nothing serious that you can Mm -hmm. just drop and continue? Yeah, there are lots of things. HelpX, I think it's helpnet.x, I think is one place where you can look at and find jobs. There are like things like organic farming, like woofing. We know so many people that end up at a hostel. We've met people that end up staying at a hostel and then they end up running it and helping manage it. So they stay there for free and they just help out. So once you're traveling, all of these sorts of opportunities, you start to see so many of them. And sometimes it might be like helping at an orphanage. People there will just give you like room and board. You can help out. We were two days ago. In not about an hour from Panama City, we did this hike into like a kind of a hippie yoga retreat area. We met a young South African there who just went to stay. And then they asked him if he could help out. He ends up working there and now they're actually paying him. So, yeah, there are all kinds of little things that you can do. Likewise, too, people, a lot of people will save their money for an excursion like this so they don't have to work. They'll take six months off and they'll just choose travel and to spend that money on building those experiences and having fun and enjoying themselves. Do you have a routine or you just wake up and do whatever? How is that? That's a great question. I, I work best on routines. The last year and a half, I was doing two books. I was finishing a third edition of a book that is called Millionaire Expat. I was writing a book called Balance. You know, coincidentally, they were published on the exact same date, like January the 18th. And I had to have some kind of routine. Like in the morning, I would write down what I was going to do at specific times of the day. And I would write in my exercise as well. My wife laughs and calls it my military schedule. She laughs at me because like I'll set an alarm. It'll be like writing from, let's say, 10 until 10.55. And then at 11 o'clock, I have to do 50 push-ups 30 pull-ups at the local park and then immediately I go back to writing <laughs> and I would schedule in like recreation time as well sometimes it would be like sitting by the pool just relaxing so I do a lot of that but when we're traveling and we're in a different place each time it, that's actually much more challenging it does increase my efficiency when I can end up with a military type schedule right now it's really mixed up so we're in Panama City and we're just doing anything and everything. And so I've, I've got these uh, local cycling groups that I go out with. They're racing cyclists, road cyclists. And cycling is really popular in Panama City. I go out on Tuesdays and Thursdays every morning. I meet this group at about 5.30 in the morning. And we cycle like about 60 kilometers. That's what I did this morning. They also go out on weekends, Saturday and Sunday mornings. Pretty much booked because I like to go out and, and join them doing that as well. My wife and I have spent this week going out hiking and exploring other areas. And then... In between, I was trying to figure out you know, how I'm going to meet my writing schedule. I write a weekly column for a U.S.-based financial services company, and I write a monthly column for a brokerage in uh, Luxembourg. This and occasionally a story for the Global Mail keeps me busy. Yes, and I wonder because when you arrive in a new city, you're like, okay, I want to explore everything. I don't have time to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want to meet really interesting people. 
I love to meet different people. You've been a cyclist all your life. I remember the story on your first book about you being on the gas station and the teachers collecting money. To... <laughs> yeah. So you always like bicycles. That's uh, quite interesting. You should be living in Europe. <laughs> well, we'll be spending the summer in Europe. And I was in Europe last September. You know, when we were in Singapore, I didn't ride my bike at all. But I was into competitive running. And so I ran competitively, which I loved because I could train in the jungle. We lived about 12 kilometers away from where I worked and I would run home, but I would run home entirely through the jungles. The entire 12 kilometers, I would say only about 100 meters of it was pavement. Many people don't realize that when they think about Singapore, they think of it being really urban and it is, but about 40% of the landmass is completely undeveloped. And there's just this fabulous trail network where I would see monkeys every day, monitor lizards every day. If I was lucky, I would see wild boar or reticulated pythons. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm speechless. I didn't know. Well, my husband is a runner, so I'm going to suggest then that Singapore will be in the list just for that. It's hot, but the running there is very good. But hot and humid, like Vietnam. Exactly. So I'll give you an example. For me, when I would come home to visit my family in Victoria, and I would come home in like June and July, I would run around Elk Lake in Victoria. And it could be middle of July. And my lungs would be on fire from the cold air coming into them. And this was mid-July British Columbia. So the air was so much colder than I'd gotten used to that it actually burned my lungs as if like for you, it would be like ah. if you went to Alaska right now and you went for a run and it was minus 10 degrees, you'd get that same burning feeling in your lungs because you're not used to that. That's what I would get in Victoria. <laughs> no, no, don't worry. I grew up in Venezuela and I believe you that when I run here or walk, even in summer, to me, is still cold. Still? Still? So, yes, I haven't gotten used to it. <laughs> of course, now if I go to a warm country, like we were in Mexico for a week in March, it was hot. It was very hot. But even they say that it was hot. You can adapt to these climates. Like, and I did adapt. If I go back, it just takes a few weeks, but I can adapt. Likewise, if I went to Singapore now, it would feel so hot. I would think, oh my gosh, I can't imagine running, but... A few weeks there, I would adapt and, and I would slowly get back into it. Huh, that's good. How do you pack when traveling? I guess now you have the experience, but let's go back to the uh, first year. Do you buy things? Oh, this is beautiful from this country. What happens? Never. <laughs> so here, here's the thing about me. If all the things in the world were free, I wouldn't own any more than I do right now. Like I have no interest in things. I might look at a beautiful item and say, wow, that's a beautiful item. But when you go to a different country and you purchase this beautiful item and you bring it back, it sits on the shelf. It doesn't really add any value. It just adds clutter. You really learn to be very minimalist when you're traveling on a bicycle for one and then in a van, number two, you really can't grab things on the go. Uh, you can't purchase souvenirs. And I'm just so glad that you can't because I wouldn't really want these things. I don't really get any pleasure out of things. I mean, it might sound really unusual, but most of us are the same as me. We just don't recognize it right away. But the bicycle, there's actually no space to put anything. Yeah, exactly. Then you realize how little you really need. You don't even have anything pulling from the back of the bicycle with like... no. We have two panniers, two panniers on the back and two on the front. So they're sort of like, they're like carrying luggage components that 
fit on the back on the sides of the back wheel and then two smaller ones on the sides of the front and we've taken like our tent and we put our tent on top of them um and we'll have like a, a small propane canister and a small propane cooker and if we're traveling through southeast asia we don't bother with these things because it's just so hot like you don't want to sleep in a tent at night so we just stay in a hotel and the hotels are really cheap but when we're traveling through europe we really enjoy to be camping because the weather is perfect we meet loads of different people it's really conducive to that but yeah we don't we don't need much wow camping in europe and then in mexico you were in the camper i mean in, yeah the camper there there yeah so we would and we would park wherever we wherever we wanted we actually had an app called i overlander and this app is great because it tells you all about the people who are doing the same thing as you so they might camp at a spot that they say is really safe hey we stayed here for a few nights the locals are really friendly you know we were able to pick up wi-fi from this restaurant we were able to get water here and propane here and they would take pictures of the region or the specific area and it might be just like town square they would pin it on the app they would talk about it do a review of it and then we could show up the next day and it was a great thing to do like just knowing we could stay anywhere we wanted so in mexico only a couple of times did we pay for camping usually more often than not we just stayed in like a like a town square and you know mexico is so cute these cute little town squares where it'd be like the sort of the center of everything people are coming out at night and they're selling food in, in the evening And we could just park there. And sometimes we'd even plug in because they'd have these electrical outlets for people that would have like their food stalls there on the perimeter of these town squares. And we could stay there. And often the town square had like free Wi-Fi. So we'd be watching like our Netflix as we sat inside of our camper van. It was amazing. It was amazing. What? Oh, my God. That's amazing. So how does it work for you when you are always traveling? You, you, do you stress about finding proper connection or you've been very fortunate? Yeah, we found that the connections we have found are as good as they are in Canada. Connections in places like Indonesia and Thailand are even better than Canada. And cheap data is so cheap. Internet data is so expensive in Canada. Cell phone plans are ridiculously expensive in Canada. Canada is like the most expensive place in the world to have an internet connection or to have data. And I say that not just anecdotally, it's a fact. So you go to so many of these developing countries that where it's actually so much cheaper and it can be better in Mexico, Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam. I find the Wi-Fi better than Canada and so cheap. It's true. It's true. It is super expensive. Yeah. Cell phone plans in Canada. Like when I go to visit, I'd just be like, oh my God, it's so expensive. And cell, cell phone plans in Canada are crazy. But if you live in Canada, you don't think that. No, no, I know. You're just like, oh, this is normal, right? It, but it's not normal. I'll tell you right now, it is not normal. <laughs> Actually, people in, in Montreal pay way less than people here in, in BC. People that go to Montreal, get a phone, and then they come and don't change it when they're in BC. Oh, interesting. Yes. You, so you are going to, in summer to Europe? Yes. Any other plans? I think there's a possibility of going to Turkey and there's a possibility of also going to Dubai. I do a lot of like global speaking engagements. And a lot of the time we end up in places because people have asked me to speak there. We keep our schedule fairly loose and fairly open. And if somebody decides that they want to fly us to Turkey or to Dubai or to Singapore and we're in the mood, then we'll expect the speaking engagement. I think my wife probably laughed there because I say when we're in the mood, sometimes I'll say, no, 
I don't, I don't really feel like doing that. Don't want to go to that particular place right now. And so I won't. So it's nice to have that choice. Yes, of course. The idea was to travel for one year and now it has turned into eight. Would that ever end? We're enjoying what we're doing. I wouldn't say never because we could always end up deciding, oh, let's go back and teach at this really amazing school in Costa Rica or in Chile, or like there's always something that could grab us and, and make us decide to do something a little bit different. But for now, we're loving what we're doing. Being a teacher, you always will find jobs. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And has Pele learned French, Italian? She will. That was the original plan. I think that trip to France this summer will be like the first step in that direction. Okay. Yes. I have the, the same thought because my husband's mother tongue is French. I can have conversational French. I can talk about silly things, very simple. I don't want to die until I speak nicely French. You know, like, I'm glad that I speak Spanish. Every time I hear a song or I speak with my friends in Spanish, I think, my God, I'm, Spanish is so beautiful. So I think it's a, it's a really beautiful language. I don't know if people have that because it's their mother tongue. I think Spanish is very, very beautiful. I think a lot of Anglophones would agree with you. Is there a particular Spanish accent, like from a specific region, Spanish-speaking region that you like, that you think is really cool? Having the exposure of Venezuelan and Spanish accents, I thought those were all the accents. And then I moved to Miami. I was so surprised. I felt like an ignorant. There were so <laughs> many different accents from so many Latin American countries. It was fascinating and sometimes confusing, but it was an interesting experience for sure. So I don't think I have a favorite accent. I think that every accent has their charm. And Mexicans have a lot of different words in Spanish. And that sometimes is a bit confusing for me, at least. I'm not sure you have noticed that. I've noticed that even just like riding my bike in terms of the things people will say or the words they'll have for like a speed bump. It's so different. Like in Mexico, it's a tope. In Panama City, they call that a retardo. And then in other parts of Panama, they call it like, it's like a sleeping policeman. Yes, that's what we call it in Venezuela. Policía acostada. Yeah. Where did Pele learn Spanish? She learned Spanish a little bit in school, but a lot when she moved to Ecuador. She lived in Colombia for a year as well. And she lived in Spain for a couple of years at two different times in her life. Oh, so she must have a neutral Spanish accent, which is very good. She sounds like she's from Madrid, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, the local, yeah. people in Panama think she's from Madrid. So, Andrew, since you are from British Columbia and I also live here in BC, please count on me with anything you need. Remember, I'm Latin and Latin people are always with open arms helping others. I love it. I love it. We noticed that Latinos are so friendly, warm. We really appreciate that. Something that has been really important to me is to be impeccable with my word. If I said I'm going to do something, I do it. If I said, let's go for coffee, we go for coffee. Oh, yeah. And for me, I usually like to set, if I, if I know I want to do something, I'll say, let's do this. And I'll say, let's do this on Tuesday at 10. Are you ready? Like something right away. My wife laughs at me. So if someone will say, well, we should get together. We should go for coffee. And if I want to do it, I'll say, tomorrow. How's tomorrow? Tomorrow at noon at this place. And I have people like commit to that. But I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, my husband has a very good friend. Every time, a day before, it cancels. Yeah. It's easier for people to do that with their cell phone these days because everybody's so connected and they text and they cancel last minute. And so for me, I don't actually bring a cell phone with me. If I say to you, 
I'll meet you today's Tuesday. If I say I'll meet you at Wednesday on Wednesday outside the Starbucks at 12 o'clock, that's when I will be there. And nobody could cancel 15 or 20 minutes or an hour or two hours before that time because I won't get the message. I, I don't take a cell phone with me because I don't have data. Cell phone, I take pictures with it. And then if I go to like a Wi-Fi hotspot, then I can download those pictures or I can check my email. But otherwise, I find that the convenient to carry a phone. But I think the drawbacks exceed the convenience for me. There's an addictive element to it as well. And I can see it when I go into restaurants and other people have their cell phones. They're not in the conversation with me. They're constantly checking their phone. It's a very antisocial and addictive device. And I know that I would be addicted to it too. So yeah, I just choose not to have any data and I don't bring a cell phone with me. So anywhere. you leave from the data or the internet that you get wherever you are? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So you're saving on that point as well because you're not paying for it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Pele agrees with you that she's the same way? She has data. So she carries the phone, but she doesn't use it. She's not like she's not a she's not addicted to it. She misses text messages and calls all the time because sometimes she doesn't often have even have the phone on. She has it with her. But I think she uses it really, really well. And I wouldn't be as responsible with it. I would be more like a normal person. I do think a simple life is good. Yes, yes, I know. Yes, I am always looking forward to meet more people with that kind of mindset. Yeah, you'll meet them. You, you can meet them. There are interesting Facebook groups. I like the, uh, the Pan American Travelers. So it's a Facebook group. It's really entertaining. You can see people's trips as they drive either from Argentina to Alaska or from Alaska to Argentina. And they share tips. People ask questions. It's actually really interesting. So I have a friend in Nicaragua and we were saying, hey, what if we go from Belize and travel in Central America? And he sent me a map with all the routes that were super dangerous that people are always mugging you. And so I was like, okay, maybe not so safe. I wonder, is it, is it just propaganda, you think? We're always afraid of the unknown. So we're afraid of the next place, the next country. So I'll give you an interesting example. We met some Argentinians who said that Every country they'd get to as they were heading north, people would say, no, 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 don't, don't go into like whatever the country was. Don't go into Peru. Don't go into, it's really dangerous there. Like everybody would say that the next place was dangerous. And they got to Mexico and the Mexican people told them, you're going to Alaska. Don't go into the United States. It's really, really dangerous. Stay in Mexico. Don't go any further than this. People are afraid of what they don't know and they don't understand. And news media always accentuates the negative news. So we get bombarded by negative news. And in reality, things like this are really, really rare, like these bad things. And that Facebook group is cool because it does put a lot of that in perspective. You can ask these sorts of questions. You can see people who are doing it. It can put your mind at ease, I think, by talking to people who have done it. Yes, I think that would be really fun. All right. Andrew, thank you so much for sharing your story, for your time. Please, saludos to Pele. I will. Thank you so much, Daniela. It will be a great idea to have in your website a map and we can see where you're next. Where is Andrew and Pele next? Which city are they visiting? And that will be really fun. And you can create a club, the Andrew Hallam Club of Travelers, and have one of the requisitions will be to be between 45 and 65. What do you think? <laughs> the Andrew, Andrew Hallam Club of world travel. <laughs> exactly. There you go. So now you have another avenue for income. <laughs> <laughs>
So yes, so thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Daniela. Thank you. Take care. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed it today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto. Thank you.